0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hey, happy Easter. He is risen. He's risen indeed. It is so good to be with you. Uh, Sorry that we're not on the roof, but you're welcome that you're not freezing. So, you know. (laughs) take it up with Garrison later. Um, Really good to be with you. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to open up God's Word with you for just a few minutes on this Easter Sunday. If you've got a Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be hanging out. If you need a Bible, there should be some in the rows. Uh, If there's not one right in front of you, just reach over awkwardly in front of your neighbor and grab that one. Matthew chapter 6. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's Word Together, it's our, our practice here at Citizens to take just a moment before the sermon to just be silent and pause before the Lord. I think for many of us, this is the only breath and moment of silence and reflection we get in our crowded, busy, hectic, frantic lives. And so we're just going to take a minute to be still before the Lord, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll get into God's word together. Lord, you are good. Your mercy is new every morning, including Easter morning. So we celebrate you and we worship you and we give you all of the glory and honor and praise that you are due as the one who rules and reigns and lives forever. So we celebrate you. Thank you for today. Thank you that every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday, but we get this special one to mark in our calendar to say this. In particular, is the day we pause. We look past all of the the cultural connotations of Easter egg hunts and pastels and family brunches and all of that, and we look at Jesus. We look at a cross. We look at an empty tomb. So, Lord, we love you. Would you be with us in these few moments together? We need you. Make your word alive in our hearts. Pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I am 31 years old, decently educated, relatively well-read, mentally healthy, I think. And I live in a sort of urban city in 2023. And I've based my entire life On the belief that an ancient, uneducated, not particularly well-read Jewish peasant from the small town of Bethlehem rose from the dead sometime around the turn of the first century. And I do know more and more how in today's society, just how crazy that might sound. But one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith movement is that it traces its origin back to a definitive event. This is not true for Judaism or Buddhism or Islam or atheism. And that event has real historical evidence, evidence we could spend hours discussing and dissecting evidence that may surprise you, evidence written about and studied by both Christian and non-Christian historians alike, evidence with enough credibility that if we were willing to be intellectually honest for just a moment, would create more of a compelling case for the historicity of the resurrection than many events we so easily accept from that same time period. And yet, I have no interest, at least this Easter, maybe next year, come back and join us then, To present that evidence to you like a lawyer presents a case to a jury. Because one of the worst kept secrets of humanity is that we do not choose the direction of our lives by simply weighing the evidence. We live by moments of clarity. The really important decisions we make for those of us who are fortunate enough to get to make them are not the product of left brain rationality alone. Rationality and logic are a part of it for sure, but there's always, al- almost always that moment where things just sort of click into place. And I don't mean just in a religious sense. I mean that in the everyday stuff of life. That dance at a mutual friend's wedding reception where you look into each other's eyes and you know you love her. And everything else feels less important than doing whatever it takes to spend your rest of your days with her. Or that weekend trip to visit a friend in another city. Or in that moment of travel between the coffee shop and the park, you realize, I just have to move here. And even though it may be risky, and even though it may be farther from home than you've ever lived before, that's a risk you're willing to take or hour two of a three-hour Zoom meeting that really could have been an email, if we're honest, where you realize, I never should have chosen this career in the first place. And even though it may be a step back in my career, and even though it may be a hit financially, and even though it may not make a lot of logical sense, I know in my gut I have to pursue this other path instead. You see, who you love, and where you live, and what you do, you did not make those decisions on rational left-brain thinking alone. There was a moment where it clicked, and here you are. And so, yes, my whole life is based on the resurrection from the dead of an ancient Jewish rabbi with very few earthly credentials. But it's not because the stacked up evidence became so convincing that my rational mind could finally be appeased. It was because there was a moment of time where the reality of the resurrection intersected with my own story of suffering and sin. And in a moment of clarity, all I could do was say with the disciple Peter in John 6, Lord, where else shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, before there were pastels and egg hunts and $20 brunches, there was a definitive moment in history known as the resurrection. And so, here we are once again to mark that moment as a church. And in doing so, we get to remember, all of us in the room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that what we need this Easter is not simply some compelling argument to debate or idea to ponder, or ancient story to make us happy for a few hours. We need an encounter with the living God. We need the overwhelming grace of God to intersect our stories of sin and suffering with the reality of the resurrection, such that we have no choice but to wake up and to worship him. And that's why I love this verse. This one verse, we get to spend a few moments exploring together this morning. You see, if you're new, if you are just joining us, welcome. Over the past 40 days of Lent, we've been on this journey together as a church, line by line, through what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6. And we've been making, in that series, the same request as modern day disciples that Jesus' first disciples did 2,000 years ago. Lord, teach us to pray. And so we've been studying together this template of prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, and we come now on Easter to the ending of the prayer, Matthew 6.13, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Church historians believe that it would have been common practice in Sunday worship as early as 80 or 90 AD for the pastor or bishop or priest to get up in gathered worship and to recite before the congregation the Lord's Prayer Our Father in Heaven, Hallowed Be Your Name, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when they finished the last line, Deliver us from evil, the entire congregation together would shout back in response, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This line throughout church history has been a shouting line. It was a declaration of worship in response, not simply to the prayer, but to the God of the prayer. In this line, we have this distinct reality that the kingdom belongs to God, that God rules over all with authority in his hand, that the power belongs to God, that he is all powerful, that he sets the earth in motion, and he holds all things, including you and your life together and the glory belongs to God, that he is the one worthy of our worship and adoration and praise and celebration. This line is a line of Easter. It was a fitting declaration of worship for the early church, and it's a fitting declaration for us this morning on Easter Sunday, because the empty tomb And the angels question, why do you search for the living among the dead? And the folded clothes of the God-man who 72 hours earlier had been beaten and nailed to a cross. And the testimony of Mary and the other women. And the eyewitness accounts of over 500 people who saw him within 40 days of the resurrection. All of that shouts across time and space. The kingdom and power and glory belong to God forever. Amen. Amen? He is not here. He is risen. But to understand that, you have to understand a little bit more about the story leading up to that moment. So let's do that together. Scene one. It won't be long, I promise. Now, contrary to what you might be expecting, the story of Easter doesn't start on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. And the story of Easter also doesn't start 33 years prior to that in a manger in Bethlehem. It starts much, much, much earlier. The story of Easter starts all the way back at the beginning of time. In the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. You see, before there was anything else, there was God. God who existed before time began, God who had fullness within himself, who did not need anything from anyone, and yet longed to share the beauty and fullness of his glory with others. And so this God creates. How? Well, the text says by speaking. That's how powerful this God is. He simply speaks and creation forms. And for the first five and a half days, he speaks all sorts of life into existence, day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, plants and animals. But then you get to the sixth day. On the sixth day, it's something different. He creates the pinnacle of his creation. The only thing that is said to get the very breath, the ruach of God is humanity, you and me and us. He creates a man and a woman. God in his infinite power out of the overflow of his glory creates and sustains life. But it's not simply life, it's life with a purpose. You keep reading Genesis 1, you get to verse 26 where you read this, then God said, let us make man in our image. God creates mankind in his image. In the ancient Hebrew text, it's the word "salem." You see, what that word means is that in ancient times, kings, to, to mark their territory and their kingdom, would set up images or selems across their kingdom. They didn't have quite as well-drawn boundary maps in ancient times. And so to, to mark, this is my kingdom, this belongs to me, they would set up images, salems of themselves. So if you were walking in a land and you said, I wonder what kingdom I'm in, you could see the image and know this part of the land belongs to this king. And so Adam and Eve are created in the image of God as little little physical representations of God, told to then make more image bearers who would spread out across God's creation, declaring to the entire world, all of it is under God's kingdom. So this is scene one. This is how the story of Easter begins. That out of the overflow of his glory, through his infinite power, God creates a kingdom. In other words, Genesis 1 shouts to us, the kingdom, the power the glory belong to God forever. Amen. And then you get to scene two. Just one page later, God has given the first man and the first woman one do not command in all that they're allowed to do. There's one thing they're not allowed to do. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God's kingdom is one of flourishing, but all true human flourishing comes with good and proper boundaries and restrictions. But the tempter, Satan, the enemy of God comes, and his temptation is not simply about fruit. Maybe you've heard the story of Genesis 3. It's not simply, look at how good this Honeycrisp apple is. That's not what it's about. The temptation is that they would be like God. Change the shout of creation, Adam and Eve. Change it from the Lord reigns to humanity reigns. And so, if you know the story, you know they eat Those who were meant to live with God under his rule and reign want to now be God themselves, and so they rebel against their king, and just as God promised, death enters the world. The death of relationship between God and man, the death of relationship between mankind and each other, the physical death promised to all humanity. In that line, you are dust, and to dust you shall return you're meant to leave Genesis 3 thinking the whole thing is messed up beyond repair, that the Lord no longer reigns, that the kingdom and power and glory no longer belong to him because creation meant to display the glory of God is now breaking down in death and decay. And God's power, which was supposed to be infinite and without limit, now seems unable to even hold his own creation together. And God's kingdom, which is supposed to spread out over all creation, now seems powerless against the kingdom of darkness. And so begins the story of humanity. The universal and horrific plight of all mankind, you and me and all who have and all who ever will live, is that we live in the death, decay, and brokenness of a scene 2 Genesis 3 world. We are, if I can put it succinctly, simultaneously as humans, sufferers and sinners. For sufferers and sinners... We're sufferers, right? We're those who experience the brokenness of life, who walk through life uh, hurting from all sorts of pain, emotional pain, physical pain, relational pain, spiritual pain. We hurt. That's a universal part of the human experience, is it not? You may have heard it said before, smile is the universal language. I think hurt is the universal human experience. We hurt, no matter your age, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your ethnicity or nationality or religion or anything else, to be human, is to hurt. But the Bible says we're also sinners. We're rebels against God, our creator. We don't just experience pain as passive victims. We create pain through our own misguided deeds and acts, pain for ourselves, pain for others. We left to ourselves, do not worship God as he deserves, but go our own way trying to be our own gods. And one of the reasons why I love the scriptures is that it does not give you room to think otherwise. Right? The Bible gives you no help if you're looking to make a worldview argument for the awesomeness of mankind, or that life will be pain and trouble-free. You just won't find it. Instead, if you're to read the the, the scriptures in an honest way, you would get story after story of humans exchanging the worship of God for the false glory of idol worship. You get story after story of kingdoms of men seeking to push out and rebel against the kingdom of God. You get story after story of pain as ancient humanity faces the very same sufferings we face today. Betrayal, abandonment, loss, infertility, hunger, lack of daily needs, and on and on and on. And in case all of that is not enough, the ultimate unbeatable enemy, death, tracks a 100% success rate. See, the human experience is one lived in these two painful realities. No matter how much we might want to cover it up on Easter morning with pastels and smiles, we still live as simultaneously sufferers and sinners. Do you feel that at all in yourself this morning. Sense that at all in your life. That rather than experiencing the flourishing of God's kingdom, your life is much more marked by brokenness and breakdown and decay. That rather than walking into hope-filled reality with God, your life is much more agony to agony to agony. And though you long to delay it, distract yourself from it, does death not loom over the horizon of our lives like some sick, twisted joke of inevitability? Now at this point, you're probably wondering, what kind of Easter service did I step into? And how do I sneak out early for brunch without anybody noticing? Which just for the record, you can't. This floor is very creaky, and we will notice. (laughs) But we are Christians, so we will forgive you. Jokes aside, here's why we had to start with All of that, scene one and scene two, because if we're going to make sense of an event as incomprehensible as resurrection, as beautiful as resurrection, as glorious as resurrection, we must first be brutally honest about the world in which resurrection happened and in which resurrection still speaks today. Because while the story of humanity is one of life and then death, after death comes a comma and not a period. Enter scene three. God becomes man. God sees our sin, he sees our suffering, and he does not sit back resigned while they destroy his most precious creation. God doesn't stand back splashing some redemptive paint on a canvas trying to make things look better from far away. Jesus, God himself, takes on flesh. He becomes a human being. He heads straight into our suffering and our sin, and though he himself never sins, Though he himself never goes against God's perfect design, when he goes to the cross, the Bible says he takes our sin upon himself. All of our rebellion, all of our wanting to wrongfully be like God, all of our corruption and evil down at our very core, Jesus, though perfect, takes the punishment for us. And in taking that punishment, he also suffers. Physical suffering, right, as his body is beaten and whipped to the point where it is seemingly unrecognizable and just shy of death. Relational suffering as his closest friends betray him and deny him and abandon him in his greatest moment of need. Emotional suffering as he feels the weight of loving and dying for the forgiveness of the very people driving the nails into his hands. Spiritual suffering, as he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. And when his time of suffering is over, as the night goes dark, as his body is taken off of the cross and laid in a tomb, it seems like the story ends at death. Right, we, we fill in the rest, right? Because we know it, because we've heard it. If we're taking an honest account and an honest reading of the account, it seems like the story ends that Friday turns to Saturday, and we left to wonder which kingdom has won, right? How do you get from the grave to the proclamation across time and space that the kingdom, power, and glory belong to God forever? Because this doesn't feel like the Lord reigns. If the grave is still full, it feels like my suffering reigns. If the tomb is not empty, it feels like my sinning still reigns. Then you remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And you remember, oh, what seems like even the greatest defeat is a moment where God's power is still shining forth. Why? Because Jesus' death is no accident. It is no mistake. This is the whole plan, and Jesus is in control the whole time. You see, Jesus' death was not unique because it was on a cross, The cross was actually a very common way of exercising the death penalty in the first century. It was unique because it was promised and it was given. Jesus promises over 10 times in the gospels alone that he was going to die. But not only was it promised, it was given. No one took Jesus's life. He willingly gave it in love. See, according to Jesus, his death was not a heinous act by a barbaric God. It was not a random deed of aggression by the Roman Empire. It was not the definitive triumph of evil. Jesus' death, according to Jesus, was a preordained, merciful, gracious, holy work of love. And here's why. Because Jesus' death was promised to us and then given for us so that we could have something other than death. Just hear that. Jesus' death was promised to us and then given for us so that we could have something other than death. How do we know that? Because three days later, what are we celebrating this morning? He got up out of the grave. Sin didn't get the last laugh. The powers of darkness didn't win. The grave couldn't hold him. He who was dead is now alive. And that is why the resurrection is the central event on which our entire faith is grounded. Because it means the story is not life than death. But rather just as it was for our Savior Jesus, it may also be a story for us that the story is life, then death, then life again. The great love of God means he enters into sin. It's the sin and suffering story of humanity to suffer and become sin on our behalf to then therefore defeat sin and suffering for us. That's what we're celebrating today. That Jesus would see us in our sin and suffering, take on flesh, enter into humanity, that he would take our sin upon himself on the cross, though he knew no sin, and suffer on our behalf, so that we would not therefore live the rest of our days in sin and suffering. Which is why this line is so fitting for Easter Sunday. Do you, do you see it? Do you see how the resurrection of Jesus echoes across all eternity, that the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to God forever? Amen. That's what we're celebrating today. That's what must intersect with the reality of your life. That is what you must be woken up to. So maybe you're walking in today and your life feels like the opposite of Easter resurrection joy. Maybe you're walking in today and you're like, I don't know about this hope thing, but I do know about the suffering thing. Maybe you feel the sting of physical pain, that unexpected diagnosis or that unexpected loss of a family member or a friend. Or maybe you feel the hurt of emotional pain. You've just been crushed over the past few years by the weight of anxiety and depression and loss. Maybe you feel the all-too-fresh heartache of relational pain, hurt by a close friend, betrayal by a coworker, abandonment by a spouse. Maybe you, you feel the nagging doubt of spiritual pain, that the God we're here and supposed to be worshiping feels so incredibly distant, and I feel alone. Maybe you're walking in today and you're well aware of the ways you're a sinner. You know how you've been rebelling against God. You can recall all of the ways this day, this week, this month, or this year, you've tried to run your life apart from him. You know the ways you've rebelled against him. You know the ways you've pushed him away and tried to be your own king and God. Maybe you were even hesitant to show up this morning, even though somebody invited you, because you're like, no, there's no way that God would want any form of me in church with the weight of my shame and guilt and rebellion. So if that's you, if that's where you are, if that's Easter reality for you, here's why I started where I did. Because you need more than some convincing arguments about the historical credibility of the resurrection. If that is where you are this morning, you need more than a lawyer's case for the empty tomb. You need more than rationality and logic. You need more than some good musicians and a free latte and some friendly faces. You need the God who all of that points to, to enter into your life who through his overwhelming and unending and new every morning grace can actually intersect your suffering and your sin and your story with the reality of the resurrection such that you have no choice but to gladly wake up and worship him. So this is your invitation this morning, to look at the cross and then to look past the cross to the empty tomb and to look past the empty tomb at the risen Savior. Because if Jesus got up from the grave after the greatest tragedy in human history, therefore shouting across time and space that the kingdom, power, and glory belong to God forever, amen, how much more might that actually be true in your pain? How much more might that actually be true in your suffering, in your guilt, and in your shame? Because Easter shouts to us, look at the empty tomb. Suffering can't hold the power. Death can't win because it didn't win with Christ. The grave could not hold King Jesus. And so the power and the glory and the kingdom belong to him. Life, then death, then life again on offer for all who believe and trust in Jesus. Then it ends, that line ends with that word forever. Forever. The kingdom, the power, the glory belongs to God forever. There is no death on the other side of the new life. It's not life, then death, and life again, then death again. It's life, then death, then life forever. Because Jesus got up out of the grave, we also trust when he promises that one day he's going to return. And one day in that return, he is going to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth where all who trust in him can live with him forever. Notice the thing, right? Scene one, right? God creates out of the overflow of his glory and power, a kingdom where humanity can flourish with him. And the future promise for us, for all who trust in Jesus is that God once again, out of the overflow of his glory, through his infinite power, will recreate a kingdom A place where all who trust in Jesus will live with him and flourish forever. And so we we have ears to hear it. We have ears to listen and souls that are willing to be still and quiet can hear the shout echo across the ancient and global church. And we join our voices that the kingdom and the power and the glory belongs to God forever. Easter sings it over us. And so the invitation is that we get to sing it too. Forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you do have the kingdom, and you do have the power, and you do have the glory. It all belongs to you. Lord, in the good news of resurrection, the good news of what we're celebrating today is that death doesn't get the final laugh. doesn't have the final say in our stories, and that we might live in these pendulums of suffering and sin, rebellious against you, and yet experiencing the broken decay of the world. Lord, it doesn't get the final say for all who are in King Jesus. Lord, your promise is that because death wasn't the end of your story, that for all who trust in you, we too one day will rise. And though we experience suffering, and though we experience sin, and though on this side of eternity, we still walk through the effects of living in a broken world, we know our future is not death in the ground you. it's life forever with you. So Lord, attribute. we, this Easter Sunday, we trust you. We run to you. We quiet our souls. We learn to listen as Easter shouts across time and space, as two billion other people across the globe hear today that the kingdom and the power and the glory belongs to you forever. Amen. That is our cry. That is our hope. That is our anthem. That is what we rest on. That is our reality. You are king. So we love you and we worship you.